Good morning. What a joy it is to gather together once again on this Lord's Day and sing to Him and pray together to Him and hear from Him and know that all this is possible because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ which has reconciled us to God. Please open your Bible to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, as you turn there, I want to talk about a funny thing that has happened to me since I became a pastor. Uh, my expectation, which at times is still the case, is that my neighbors and those that interact with my community would try to avoid religious topics once they find out what I do. But often it's the opposite that's happened. Uh, yesterday, as I was finishing up playing basketball at our, our local YMCA, most of the guys went out of their way to tell me, Happy Easter! One guy that I was guarding, during the game, he made the comment to me, hey, it's a big day for you tomorrow, right? <laughs> and this isn't unlike what I've heard from other neighbors before. Uh, last year, I was interacting with one of our neighbors, and he commented to me on Easter Day, he's like, I guess this is kind of like the Super Bowl for you, right? <laughs> and then just yesterday, I was talking to a different neighbor, and he compared Easter Sunday to like the Daytona 500 for pastors. I was like, well, another neighbor said the Super Bowl. He said, no, that's like Christmas. Like, all right, I guess I got it all wrong. I didn't learn that in seminary. Now, while I always do get a chuckle from these comments, I've also come to recognize that there, there seems to be certain expectations for what this day looks like for me as a pastor and for us as a church. In what is left of the cultural Christianity that exists in our society today, there, there are big expectations for Easter Sunday. And I'm not exactly what, sure what those expectations are supposed to be. But they happen at the intersection of, think about events like the Super Bowl and Daytona 500. The intersection of, of event and community and fanfare and excitement and competition. It's as if this is that big event, the one we've been waiting for all year. This is the day that we've all circled on our calendars in red. The day where we can finally show the world how great Jesus is, and how great we are to be on his team. And sadly, this is how many Christians approach Easter Sunday. It's the day for production, for a big event. It's the day to blow the budget, to pull out all the stops. The bigger, the better. And it's done in the name of, of celebration and of outreach. Uh, today is the day that we will have all the world's attention, so let's make sure they see all that we have to offer, all that they're missing out on. And there's a sense in which there's a kernel of truth in this sentiment. This is a big event. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. We do want to hold out what we have to offer to the world. This event not only deserves our attention, it demands our attention. We do have it circled on our calendars, but not in the way the NFL circles Super Bowl Sunday. We don't have it circled looking ahead. We have it circled looking back. The expectation is that there is something about today that demands our attention is simply wrong. What we have to offer, what demands our attention and the attention of the world around us is not today, Easter Sunday, or the programs and possibilities the church holds out to the world, but what took place on a Sunday morning almost 2,000 years ago. That is what demands our attention. But today and every Sunday, each Lord's Day, we gather to, to bear witness to the reality of that day 2,000 years ago, to declare that what took place on that day 
all those centuries ago, is the most consequential fact of human history. That's right, the, the most important event in all of human history is what we remember and celebrate today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, two people can say Easter Sunday is a big deal, but mean two very different things by it. And in many ways, this difference between expectation and reality is exactly what we see taking place in Matthew's Gospel. You know, just over a little bit, more than a year and a half, over that time, we've been making our way through this book, this Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse. And we've seen again and again how Jesus comes and He defies the expectations of those who encounter Him. He does not come from the place anyone expected. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He does not come to the people anyone expected. He dines with tax collectors and sinners. He does not usher in a kingdom that everyone recognizes. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. He does not teach in a way that everyone understands, because to them it has not been given to know. Everywhere we turn, Jesus defies expectations. And then last week, it's as if light is breaking through. Breaking through the clouds, and amidst hostility and rejection and opposition and confusion, Jesus asks his disciples a most important question. In Matthew 16, 15, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question anyone could ever encounter. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a good man? Is he an amazing man? Is he a madman? At some point, one way or another, everyone must answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And last week, we, we heard Peter's remarkable answer. In Matthew 16, 16, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. While Jesus defied the expectations of the religious leaders all around him, here, Peter, a fisherman, sees Jesus for who he is. He is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of the living God. And what Peter states here is 100% true. This is who Jesus is. But even though this is what Peter says, over the next several weeks we're going to come to see that what he expected this confession to mean was something very different. Peter's words were correct, but his understanding of those words was off the mark. So while the disciples recognized that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, they did not yet know what it meant for him to be the Messiah. They had wrong expectations. They expected a victorious warrior, a political conqueror, one who would bring to shame the governments of the world and raise up the people of God. They expected pomp and power, undeniable victory and indisputable success. They expected that the Messiah would meet what they saw as their greatest need. And their greatest need had to do with Rome. It had to do with Jerusalem. They thought their biggest problem was political. But they had a far, far bigger problem that Jesus Christ and the Messiah came to solve. That problem is what took place in the garden when... Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden away from God's presence because of their sin. We were made to, to dwell with God. We were made to be in fellowship 
with God. This is true humanity. This is fullness of life. But sin has brought this massive barrier, this insurmountable, insurmountable barrier between God and man. And while what Peter confessed, Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, the Christ, what he confessed was true in the sense that Peter meant it. That was to come later. And what Jesus came to do was what they never expected. So Jesus comes in his grace and his kindness as a teacher, and he defines those words for his disciples. He explains what it means for him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is what we're going to see in our text today. On the heels of Peter's confession, Matthew explains that explains what Jesus begins to teach. And we're just going to look at one verse together. Matthew 16, verse 21. You can look with me. This is the Word of God. So on the heels of Peter's confession, this is what Jesus began to teach. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed And on the third day, be raised. Thanks be to God for His Word. Amen. On this Easter Sunday morning, we're going to consider together what the Messiah must do. What this Messiah must do in order to reconcile God and man. And we're not here talking about things that the Messiah is planning to do or thinking about doing. We're not talking about what He hopes to do or, if all goes right, what He will do. We are here to look upon and consider what Jesus says he must do. These things are not accidental to who he is. They are essential to who he is. Because he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, this is what he must do. And Jesus teaches us, teaches his disciples and us today four things that he must do. We're going to look at these four things. First is this. The Messiah must go to Jerusalem. I'm going to spend significantly less time on this one. Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem. Now the idea that Jesus must go to Jerusalem wouldn't have all been all that surprising to his disciples. This is what they would have expected. This was the city of God's people. The land God promised His people. This is the place where David reigned, where Solomon built God's house. So, of course, the Messiah is going to go to Jerusalem. It would make sense that this Messiah, this long-awaited king, would start heading there. That he would be anointed there, that he would ascend to his throne there, that he would conquer and vanquish his enemies there. So Jesus teaches that, that he must go to Jerusalem. But it's what comes next that would have shocked and jarred the disciples. And the second thing Jesus teaches that he must do is that the Messiah must suffer. Matthew writes that Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Now these people, the elders and chief priests and scribes, they represent the religious leaders of Israel. They are the the wise, the the godly, the trained, the teachers. They are the most important people in Jerusalem. So great, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, and then he's teaching them that he must suffer at the hands 
of the highest court in the land, the most important people there. And Jesus says he's going to suffer many things from these men. Now try a little thought experiment with me for a moment. You see, look around the world, and you see the confusion and, and the disarray and the chaos all around us. You see tragedy and injustice. You see lies prevail. It seems like lies prevail more and more. You see so much that seems so wrong. Now, if you were to come up with a savior for this world, if you were to come up with someone, imagine someone who could bring an end to the pain, an end to the confusion, an end to the un- injustice and unrighteousness, would suffering be a part of the story? I don't think any of us, if we answered that question honestly, would ever imagine, could ever conceive of a Savior who must suffer. Not uh, plan B, he's going to suffer. But no, plan A, he must suffer. But this is what Jesus teaches he must do. Jesus teaches that the Messiah, God's anointed one, the Christ, must suffer. The Jesus that we worship, the Savior that we look to, was one whose life was marked by profound suffering. But why? Why must he suffer? Two things must be said in answer to this question. Jesus must suffer, first, because it was the will of his Father for him to suffer. This is what Jesus must do because this was the eternal purpose of God to save sinners. This was the fulfillment of God's plans. His suffering is not an accidental tragedy, but divine destiny. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So Jesus must suffer because it was the will of his Father for him to suffer. The second reason he must suffer, he must suffer because sin demands it. Make no mistake, Jesus never sinned. He lived a blameless, perfect life in his humanity. It was not his sin that demanded suffering, but our sin. And here's where things get uncomfortable for us. Jesus' suffering, the fact that he must suffer, exposes our sin and the judgment that it demands. When we consider the suffering of Jesus... Whatever comes into your mind, whether it be him leaving the joys of heaven or him experiencing the brutality of the cross, we don't stand off to the side as compassionate, sorrowful bystanders, as if we're watching the passion of the Christ play out on screen with tears in our eyes about the injustice of Christ's sufferings. No. No, when we look at Jesus' sufferings, we should not weep for Jesus We should weep for ourselves. In his suffering, we are confronted with who and with what we are. We are sinners who deserve judgment, condemnation. And this is what Jesus must experience. And what kind of judgment do we deserve? This leads us to the the third thing that Jesus, the Messiah, teaches that he must do. Third, the Messiah must be killed. Not only must Jesus go to Jerusalem to suffer, he goes to Jerusalem to be killed. 
Why? Why must he do this? Because the wages of sin is death. This is the undeniable reality for all humanity over all of time. Because of sin, because sin exists in this world, you must die. You will die. This is why death entered the world, and this is why death will take us out of the world. Sin. And how might we talk about sin? There are many ways we could define sin this morning. What is this sin that ushers death into the world? One simple way we might consider it is to say that sin is going your own way. Going your own way. This is how Isaiah 53.6 describes our plight. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. Sin means death because we have turned our own way. This is what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what happens to us on a daily basis. We turn to our own way. We have chosen to live as if we can live how we want to live. As if we can make up life as we want it to go. Going our own way says that we define truth. It says that we determine what's real. We decide who we are. All that matters is what we decide, who we invent ourselves to be. That's going our own way. We do this in little ways and big ways. We choose who we love. We choose who we want to be. We choose who becomes a part of our family and who doesn't. We choose to pursue what makes us happy. Ultimately, we live in a world that says that we possess ourselves. We are our own makers. We can and will live as we please. Is the, the lie of sin. Going our own way will make us happy. We have turned every one of us to our own way. This is who we are. This is where we end up in our sin. We are foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. We are those who live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And in our sin, we get exactly what we aim for. Life without God. That's sin's aim. But instead of finding life without Him, our pursuit of self-autonomy, of self-fulfillment, it leads to our destruction. All of our sin leads always and only to death. All of our sin leads always and only to death. That's the only place it can lead. For some of you young people here, as, as you grow and as you, as you grow into young adulthood, there are going to be many temptations that you will face, and adults face them as well. And they always hold out this promise that, you know what, pursuing this will be better. Go your own way, you'll be happier. It's lies. It's lies. And all of our sin, big and small, always and only, leads to death. But in the coming of Jesus, in the acting out of what He must do, in His own death, God provides a Savior who can rescue us from our madness, who can rescue us out of this madness. One theologian writes, at the cross of Jesus Christ, God arrests the whole course of our sin. God sets aside finally, once for all, the entire made project in which we try to be our own masters. God overthrows sin. 
God does not leave us to our own devices, to our own way. God refuses our refusal of Him. Above all, God maintains and establishes with us that fellowship in which alone we can live and flourish. God alone can do this. We cannot help ourselves, but God can and does come to our assistance. And God does it in this way. He takes our place. Yes, He takes our place. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. Yes, with His wounds we are healed. Thanks be to God that the Messiah did what He must do. He went to Jerusalem. He suffered. And He was killed. But we are left with this massive problem. What good is a dead Messiah? What good is a Savior's corpse? But by the great grace of God, this is not all that Jesus taught His disciples that He must do. You see, though the Messiah must go to Jerusalem, while He must suffer and be killed, fourth and finally, the Messiah must be raised. When Jesus was left to die hanging on a cross, this did not signal His defeat. This was not His end. This was not the triumph of man finally having his own way. No. No, this is all the very fulfillment of God's plans to reconcile us to himself by taking our hopeless cause, by becoming himself a sacrifice for our sins, by winning for us everlasting life and peace in him. And we see this in what Jesus taught his disciples, that on the third day he must be raised. Why must Jesus be raised? Two simple reasons. First, Jesus must be raised to give proof of who He is. Revelation 1.18 describes Jesus Christ as the living one. We saw in Peter's confession that, that He was described as the Son of the living God. He is the one who died and is alive forevermore. Now, it's important to note that Jesus Christ did not become the living one at the resurrection. For all eternity, He is the living one. He is the resurrection and the life. He has no beginning and no end. He is uncreated God, possessing infinite life in Himself. So in the resurrection, we don't get a new Jesus, like version 2.0 that's newer and better, but we see the true Jesus Christ the Son of God revealed. Had Jesus not been raised, Jesus would have been proven to be a fraud. He could not have been who He claimed to be, who Peter confessed Him to be. But because He rose, we know He is who He says He is. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus must be raised to prove who he is, to give proof of who he is. Second, Jesus must be raised to give us new life. Not only does the resurrection bear witness to who Jesus is, it also bears witness to what he has done. It reveals to us what we have in him. The life, the eternal life that Christ possesses is shared with all those who have been reconciled to the Father. He shares this life with us. God made us alive together with him. If Christ had not been raised, then we could not have this newness of life. We could never know that what Jesus accomplished was complete, that he fully paid for all our sins, but this we know. Though death was once our enemy, oh, death, where is your victory? Though sin once threatened to destroy, oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God that he has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One pastor writes, His being raised indicates the satisfaction of divine justice. The punishment is over. The merit of Christ has proven worthy. The debt has been paid. Death has been vanquished. Sin has been atoned for. Thanks be to God. Now, while the disciples expected a, a certain type of Messiah, the Messiah who came was infinitely better, incomparably greater than what they imagined. And perhaps for you this morning, as you woke up on, on this Easter day, you thought, eh, this is kind of the church's Super Bowl. This is the, the Daytona 500 for all those pastors. What we have on this day, what we look back to on this day, is far, far better, far greater than any celebration of sports or celebration of, I don't know, anything else you could celebrate. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. This day defines who we are as the people of God. And what's wonderful is for the church, every Sunday is the Lord's day. Every Sunday, we look back on what Jesus Christ has done for us. What He came to do, He has done. And we celebrate that fact. So what is our response to this reality? What is our response to this truth? This day stands as the promise and security, the guarantee that all that Christ accomplished is really true. Through Christ, we really are partakers of grace, recipients of forgiveness, brought into relationship with God himself. Though we once were far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we must live in the joy of this reality. The debt we owed has been paid. Jesus paid it all. The wrath we deserve has been satisfied. What we could not do, God has done for us. So there's no more need to strive to be good enough. No more room to exhaust yourself trying to work your way to God. There should be no more bondage to your desires, no more slavery to your own way. There's no more fear of what's to come, dread of what sickness and death might bring you. In Jesus, there is freedom to live 
as God has made us to be. Walking in fellowship with Him, finding satisfaction and hope and joy in Him. In Jesus, we walk as sinners and sufferers who have a sure and confident hope of what's to come in the future. Just as sure as He rose, we also will one day rise. So live in the good of that joy. And we must also live, not only in the good of that joy, but we must live testifying to this reality. Our lives, our church, exist as that which simply bears witness to the fact of who Jesus is and what He has done. We aren't off inventing new ways to get to God. We aren't off inventing ways to impress the world. We are simply pointers, testifiers, witnesses to the greatness and glory of what Jesus Christ has done. He is our confidence. He is our message. He is what we are all about and what we will be about until He comes. So Easter Sunday is not an opportunity to show the world all that we are, all that we can do. It's an opportunity to point to Him. It's another time to say, He is our Savior, and He is risen. I read one, one early 20th century theologian. He said this, There was one time, and one time only, that the disciples lived like someone with merely the memory of Jesus. There was one time that happened. When was it? It was a gloomy, desperate time. It was the three sad days after the crucifixion. What was it that within a few days transformed a band of mourners into the spiritual conquerors of the world? It was not the memory of Jesus' life. It was not the inspiration which came from past contact with him. But it was the message. He is risen. That message alone gave to the disciples a living Savior, and it alone can give to us a living Savior today. Brothers and sisters, He is risen. You pray with me. Father, thanks be to God that You have sent Your only Son into this world to bear the wrath that we deserved, to suffer in our place for our sins, that we might be reconciled to You. And thank You that Jesus, though he died for our sins, did not stay dead, but finished his work and was vindicated in his resurrection. Thanks be to God that your son was raised on the third day. This we celebrate, and to him we look, our living Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.